The message from God's word will be from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. As you know, Sunday evenings we're discussing God's sovereignty and how God's people are ordained to live in a hostile world, a dark world, a sometimes threatening world. And in the midst of it, God's sovereignty and how we respond to difficulties whether nationally, whether as a people, as a church, or personally. Where do you turn when you face disaster, impending doom or distress? Personally, do you try to manipulate the situation and try to to wiggle through the situation by your own means, by your own wisdom? Do you pull out all the stops, make all the phone calls you can, make all the the, uh, connections possible? Do you bulldog it and try to to hound out everyone involved and possibly work out a good solution in your own wisdom? Or do you trust in God? Do you turn to God first? Certainly there's there's action required on our parts in all kinds of trials and tribulations. But do you trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not unto your own understanding? In all your ways acknowledge Him and... Watch him direct your paths. So what's the situation of this prophecy in Isaiah? Really from chapters 7 through 10 or 11, you see Isaiah talking to King Ahaz. And Ahaz, the king of Judah, the southern kingdom in Israel, is threatened by Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. Syria and Israel have allied themselves and they are coming against Judah and If you look in chapter 7, verse 2, you see that as soon as Ahaz was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, with the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his own people shook as trees of the forest shake before the wind. They're terrified that this new alliance is going to crush crush Judah and crush Jerusalem. And they're scared. They see impending doom and an attack that could not be resisted. And Isaiah goes to Ahaz and he says, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, trust the Lord, pray to God, repent, turn to God and trust him. But what did Ahaz do? He, he reached out to Assyria, Assyria, a, a kingdom that's rising far in the north toward the river Euphrates. Assyria with a mighty army and mighty people, mighty in power. And Ahaz reaches out to Syria and says, Syria, come help us against Israel and Syria. Assyria. It's easy to get mixed up with Syria and Assyria. So he calls out to Assyria and says, come and rescue me. Come and rescue me. So this is the setting of this particular prophecy in Isaiah chapter 8. Ahaz and the people of Judah are longing for the help of Assyria. We'll begin reading in verse 5. Chapter 8, verse 5. The Lord spoke to me again. 
Because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently and rejoice over Rezin and the son of Remaliah, therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river, mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over all its channels and go over all its banks. It will sweep on into Judah. It will overthrow, overflow and pass on reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob And I will hope in him. Verse 20. To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Verse 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and peace, and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We'll pause there. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, your mighty word, your inerrant word. Your word that encourages, that corrects, that lifts us up, that shows us Jesus Christ, that shows our mighty King, 
that shows the holy God and his great power and great might over every event on the earth. Encourage us, we pray, as we study the scripture in Jesus' name. Amen. So I read uh, through chapter 9 as well because you need to know that from chapter 7 to really 10 or 11, uh, Isaiah is offering not just rebuke to Judah for rejecting God, but also showing that out of the discipline of God will come great comfort. Indeed, he talks about Christ. Christ is the backdrop of the redeeming of God's remnant. So let's go through verse by verse and look at what this prophet Isaiah is saying to his people, Israel, the people of Judah. The Lord, in verse 5, the Lord spoke to me again because this people has refused the waters of Shiloh that flow gently over. The people of Judah and King Ahaz have rejected the God of Jacob. They have rejected the God of Abraham. They've refused the waters of Shiloh. This metaphor is referring probably to the spring of Gihon, which is flowing underneath the city of Jerusalem. Uh, When in the next generation after Ahaz, King Hezekiah, his son, is invaded by the Assyrians, and it talks about this in this prophecy, It's the tunnel of Hezekiah. They stop up the spring on the outside and they tunnel through the mountain to the spring under the city so that they can actually access the waters of the spring of Shiloh or the spring of Gibeah, if you will. So they refuse the waters of Shiloh, refusing God in this metaphor. Although it's these waters that are going to actually bring salvation to the people of Jerusalem during the invasion of uh, Shennacherib in the next generation. But at this time, they've refused God, refused the gentle waters of Shiloh. They've refused the prophets. They've rejected God's provision and care provided for his own people. They've rejected the word. They've rejected right worship. They've rejected prayer. And looked, rather, to foreign lands ruled by foreign gods to Assyria for their trust. This really is, it's easy to point fingers at Ahaz looking back on the situation. But this is our own hearts as well. It's our own inclination. Why are we not a people of prayer? We don't really believe God is going to do anything. Why are we not more attuned to prayer when we meet needs in our lives, when we see our country disintegrating before our eyes, when we see the rise of perversion and sin? Why do we not turn to God in prayer? As a church, as a people, as families, because it's so much easier to to throw darts at a picture on a wall. It's so much easier to grumble and complain This is what Ahaz and the people of Judah were doing. They would not come to God in prayer. It was so much easier just to call out to Assyria, say, come and rescue us. They trusted in their own wisdom. This alliance with Assyria was their God in this moment. 
They were living as practical atheists. They distrusted the God who created them, who covenanted with them to protect them. They've refused the waters of Shaloah. They were external Christians, external people of God, but internally their hearts reflected that they really did not trust God and they practically denied God's existence by their actions. They rejoice over Rezin and the son of Ramalia. This is Assyria. They rejoice in the successes of these foreign pagan powers and they long for the strong and mighty kings of the world to rule over them. They forsake Yahweh, the creator of the earth, for these earthly kings. Again, this is a correction for our own hearts. We think that sitting under the regular preaching of the word is a small thing. We think that coming to God in corporate prayer at a prayer meeting is a small thing and worthless. We think that uh, reading our Bibles every day and trying to understand the word of God is a small thing. The praying in our closets, on our knees, it's a small thing. It's not meaningful. And yet these small things are the things of the Christian life. The ordinary Christian life is the power of the Christian life. Faithfulness is what counts. Not finding the strongest or best solution, earthly solution to your problem. Turning to God. And yet God is going to give them what they ask for and he will give you exactly what you ask for as well. He will discipline you and bring you to a place of holiness if you're his child. This is what happens in verse 7. Therefore, behold, the Lord is bringing up against them the waters of the river. Speaking of the river Euphrates, again, alluding to the people of Assyria. They are mighty and many, the king of Assyria in all his glory. And he continues using this river metaphor. He says, the waters of Assyria are going to rise up all around you. They're going to go over the banks and sweep on into Judah. Remember, Judah is asking for Assyria's help. And yet God is saying, you asked these people for help, and they are going to help, and then they're going to destroy you. The water will reach even to the neck. Its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. This is exactly what happened. God told the Assyrians to come and they came like bees, like flies, he later says in the prophecy. They were in every nook and cranny. God is bringing the river and it will flood Judah. The Assyria that they loved and wanted, God would give it to them. Israel was completely destroyed. The northern kingdom, yes, it was destroyed. Syria was destroyed. But the destruction was also going to to come over Judah, all the way up to the neck. When did this happen in history? Well, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, rebelled against Assyria. There was a heavy tribute laid upon Judah because of this alliance that his father had made. And Hezekiah says, no, we're not doing this anymore. So Assyria came, Sennacherib came, and with his armies destroyed Everything except Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the only city that wasn't conquered. The water truly was up to their neck. Interesting that the people of Jerusalem were able to survive the siege because of the waters of Shaloah that they had rejected. 
Hezekiah dug a tunnel all the way to that spring. If you go to Jerusalem, you can still go through that tunnel. It's amazing. You can go to the tunnel that Hezekiah dug, and you can walk in the waters of Shaloah, the spring of Gihon. The very spring that they had rejected in the metaphor is the spring that kept them alive. They were delivered by God from this attack miraculously. And the armies of Assyria were defeated by God at Jerusalem. But the waters had truly come up around their neck. And even in their distress and their discipline, this is a discipline from God on the land of Judah. He still shows great compassion for them. He refers to Judah as Emmanuel. It will come up around your neck. It will fill the breadth of your land. O Emmanuel. If you go back to chapter 7, God had just told Isaiah and King Ahaz, verse 14, The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which in the New Testament we're told means God with us. Speaking of Christ. So what are we to make of this? Why is he calling this nation of Judah that he's about to discipline with such hard discipline, Emmanuel, God with us? The covenant that God has with his people is such that God is identified so closely with his own people and with the Redeemer himself. And certainly this is meant to point to Christ and God's holy providence. And the gospel is foreshadowed. And just as the righteous retribution of God is so closely associated with the Redeemer, we see the same thing in Christ. God experiences the wrath and the destruction for the people of God. And the judgment of God is coming upon them. It's a loving and costly judgment. And so closely does he love this people, this rebellious wife, that he calls them by his own name. And he does the same thing in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9 he says, Be broken, you peoples. Be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. He's talking to Assyria. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. In the Hebrew, it's the same as above, for Emmanuel, for Emmanuel, for God is with us. He says to the people allied against Judah, do your worst. Come on, bring it. Whatever you've got, bring it. Why? Because God is with us. It will not stand. And again, in Hebrew, this is an exclamation point. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. He's contrasting the armies of Assyria against the holy God, Emmanuel, and he says, it's not going to matter. God is with us. Nothing will happen apart from God's perfect plan. He will not let any trial come upon you beyond what you can manage, and he will ensure that you, the elect, can manage everything he brings to you. Why? Because... Emmanuel, because God is with us. And this is our hope as well. 
No matter what God brings to you as a person, as a church, as a country, as a family. And nothing happens apart from his plan. His providence is such that not a hair falls from your head, not a leaf falls from a tree apart from the plan of God. He's mighty and he's preserving and governing all his creatures according to his good plan. So even the most devastating invasion of the army of Assyria is seen in light of God's plan, God's sovereignty, with the remembrance that he is with us. For we in America, the, the thought of impending war or a bad election or cultural disintegration or a financial collapse or all of these things that are meant to cause us panic. We can say with the prophet Isaiah, strap on your armor and be shattered. God is with us. God is with us. If you think of our prayers, our prayers are always for repentance and revival. We want the people of God and the people of our country to repent and to come to God. And truly, God hears our prayers. But whether they repent and come to God, whether we repent and come to God, whether He brings revival upon us or discipline for our rebellion, which we deserve, God is with us. God is with us. In that sense, it's encouraging because it's good. God has a plan, and His plan is good. This is what Isaiah is saying it will come to nothing. Take your counsels, strap on your armor, do your worst, but God is with us. And then we see that the Lord in verses 11 and 12 and 13 encourages Isaiah himself, encourages the prophets. The Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the counsel in the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy, and so on. Yahweh spoke to Isaiah with a strong hand upon him. He strongly reveals his word to Isaiah, and he warns him, don't act like the rest of the people. Don't act like they are. We see that, I mean, certainly... The, the sermons that are the most weighty in a church are the sermons that the Lord has already preached to the pastor's heart. And this is what God is doing to Isaiah. He put a strong hand upon Isaiah and gave him this word. Three don'ts and three do's, if you will. And it was all about not following the crowd into panic, into conspiracy thinking, into fear and dread. Why? Because to do those things is really to live a, a life that reflects a practical atheism. We live as if God isn't really there. One of our family's favorite movies, we've watched it with our children for years. I don't know if it's David's favorite, but it's a good one anyway. It's called Anne of Green Gables. And the matriarch of the movie has this saying. She says, to despair is to turn your back on God. 
to despair is to turn your back on God. And I think she's right. Isaiah's got a strong hand upon him, and the strong hand is telling him, Don't despair. Don't despair. The Hebrew has the, the sense of taking him by the hand. And it, it's almost as if you remember sometimes if you're walking with someone who, who needs help or um, who doesn't see something that's coming. You're about to walk into a street and you see a car coming and the other person doesn't. You grab their hand and pull them back. Or you're walking with a child and the child doesn't understand that to step right there would be to step in an ant bed. You might get bitten. You just take their hand and you move them over. The strong hand of God is on Isaiah and he's saying, okay, don't, don't do that thing. Don't, don't live like the rest of the people there. And he's giving Isaiah the strength he needs to go really against the current, against the flow. And this is a strength he gives us in his word as well. When all the rest of your neighbors and all the rest of the country feel such great fear and dread and despair because of whatever's happening in the world, we can say like Isaiah, do your worst. God is with us. I'm not going to fear. Yeah, I'll prepare. I'll wear my seatbelt when I drive. I'll do normal things to prepare for whatever's coming, but my hope is in God. He says three things, three don'ts. Don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. In other words, looking at Israel and looking at um, Syria and looking at Assyria and all the political machinations that were going on, the people of Judah were, well, I think what's really happening is the leaders are, are probably calling out to Assyria, but they're also putting feelers out to, and there's all these different conspiracies. And what's God saying in the midst of all of it? There's no conspiracy. I'm God. I'm doing what I do. And a correction for us. We look at world events. We look at events in our own family and in our own lives. And we think, oh, I wonder if this happened because of that and that because of this and this because of that. It doesn't matter. Serve God. Trust God. There's nothing out of control. Everything is in God's hand. Don't call conspiracy what these people call conspiracy. And this is the way of the world. If you want to look at something interesting and tragic, begin studying or researching uh, people who die in the midst of crowds that are panicking. A packed building, a packed stadium, crowds are scared by a fire or some natural disaster or whatever, and they just start panicking and running. And the pressing and... The stampede causes people to die. And Isaiah is saying, don't follow this crowd. You need to get out of the crowd and trust God. He also says, don't fear what they fear. And don't be in dread. What are the practical outworkings of fearing and dreading? Well, you do things that are not consistent with God's word. You do things that don't show the love and the confidence in Christ, our Savior. And Isaiah says, do not do that. Trust in God. Matthew Henry says, 
Don't look for any indirect courses for your own security. In other words, we live faithfully because we trust God. We are confident in our prayer because we trust God. And that's how we handle every situation in life, big or small. We're confident in our prayers, we're faithful in our prayers, and we live daily before the face of God. And let what happens what happens. Put on your your sword. Do your worst. God is with us. So don't fear what they fear. Let your heart be anchored on the goodness and faithfulness and sovereignty and power of our Almighty God. Do you know that God is for you? He's for you. If you have faith in Christ, He is for you. He's not just up there wondering what's going to happen, He's on your side. Don't be afraid. That's what he's telling Isaiah. Don't be afraid. I'm for you. I'm with you. And then he gives three do's. Do honor the Lord of the armies as holy. And do fear him. And do dread him. That's verse 13. Have you ever wondered in a mighty fortress is our God where it says, Lord Sabaoth, his name? What is that talking about? Sabaoth is just a Hebrew word. It means of the armies. Yahweh Sabaoth. This is the words in, in Hebrew in verse 13. Honor Yahweh Sabaoth, the God of the angel armies. Do you see the, the army of Assyria is threatening to come and destroy? And God says to Isaiah, Honor the God of the angel armies. Fear the God of the angel armies. He alone is holy. He's unlike any earthly king in his power and his might and his wisdom and his presence. And you can do nothing. To thwart his plan. He's the one you should fear. He's the almighty creator God. The infinite and eternal and unchangeable God. He holds the universe together by the word of his power. How could you possibly be afraid? And consider all of that applied to your own salvation as Paul says in Romans 8. And if this is true, and if God really is for us, who can be against us? Who indeed? Nothing happens apart from his goodwill and his good pleasure. The only one we are to dread, to fear, as Jesus said, is the one who can put your soul and your body in hell forever. We fear no man, but we fear God. What does this do during our practical daily living, our faithful daily living, this what the world would see as an insignificant life. This, this ignorant person who trusts in God and who wakes up and prays to God and who studies the Word of God and who comes to church often to fellowship with the saints of God and to hear the preached Word of God and to learn about God. God uses all of that to make you confident. And if you do have to face something tragic or terrible, Or if you're facing that right now, he encourages you and gives you confidence and strength. God and his power, his might, all of the attributes of God and his character, certainly this informs our response to all tragedy or impending hardship nationally, in our families, in our own persons. It should impact all of our lives. 
we should fear the holy God. And holy is his name. It just struck me as I was preparing. I saw some worship services on uh, the computer. Uh, a different a different church, different kind of church, a different Jesus, different gospel, as we talked about. And the worship service reflected such a flippant and disrespectful and sensuous and worldly and selfish view of God. The people just came into the service uh, just happy and like they're coming to a movie, just joking and chewing gum and had drinks in their hands and looking sharp. It seems so worldly and so irreverent and silly. And the posture as the preacher was just giving his advice was still so irreverent. It caused my heart to tremble. We expect to see no fear of God in the world. We expect that. But to see such irreverence in churches is terrifying. It's one of the things that people say about Meadow Creek and really our tradition of worship in the Presbyterian Church is that we seem to honor God and we're certainly striving to honor God in worship. <coughs> David Wells, again, you've heard this quote before. <clears throat> he summarizes the problem in the evangelical world. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique or insufficient organization or antiquated music. And those who want to squander the church's resources bandaging these scratches will do nothing to staunch the flow of blood that's spilling from its, tr- its true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. His truth is too distant. His grace is too ordinary. His judgment is too benign. His gospel is too easy. His Christ is too common. You know, this was the fundamental problem in the church in the time of Isaiah as well. Their God was too inconsequential, too distant, too ordinary, too benign, too easy, and too common. They needed more. They needed something more. May we come to worship in fear and trembling. May we come rejoicing, certainly, for our salvation. But may we also remember that we're coming to Almighty God. He's a loving Father, yes. He's the, whole, the holy creator of the, worlds, of the world, and this is true as well. He's also the judge of all the earth. And as Isaiah was told, he is Emmanuel. He's God with us. And look at verse 14, the great comfort. He just proclaimed, prophesied disaster for Judah. And in verse 14, he offers comfort as well. And he, God, will become a sanctuary. For God's people, even in the midst of discipline and hardship, he is a sanctuary. He's our rock. He's our fortress for his people. For those who reject him, what is he? He's a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. To both houses of Israel, a trap to ensnare the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many will stumble upon it, and they will fall and be broken, and snared, and taken. Certainly this happened in the time of Isaiah, 
The word of God was rejected. The word of God became a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. But certainly, it's prophetically speaking of the word of Christ. And those who reject Christ, as we read in 1 Peter, are rejecting the rock, are rejecting the Redeemer. Let's close with chapter 10, verse 20. If you flip two pages and read chapter 10, verse 20. Again, the end of this long prophecy. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, the Assyrians, but will lean on the Lord and the Holy One of Israel in truth. See, this one of the purposes of God bringing discipline upon us at corporately or individually is that we learn to lean upon and trust upon the only one who can help, and that's the Lord. And verse 21, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, the people Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord of hosts will make a full end, as is decreed in the midst of all the earth. So the people of Israel and Judah would be destroyed, and only a remnant would return. And that remnant really points to the remnant in every age that God preserves by his own power. We learn to lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. We're preserved by the grace of God and by grace alone. So God will do what he must do. For his own glory and for our good, he will do it. He will do what is best. He will not give you or give the church one measure more distress or hardship than we can handle. And everything that he gives us, he will enable us to bear by his Holy Spirit. We should hear the word to Isaiah. We should not grumble and call conspiracy the things that everyone else calls conspiracy or fear or dread, all the things that everyone else fears and dreads. We should fear God alone. God will preserve his own church for his own glory. And because he loves us and he loves you. This gives us great confidence. We need to be confident when we pray and pray we must. And we need to be faithful in our godly living. And this is how the world has changed. Faithfulness, daily faithfulness and confident prayer. Empowered by the Holy Spirit. He is our rock and our strong tower. Let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you and we thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your grace. We thank you for being our God, our strong tower, our faithful fortress. We thank you that you are the King of kings. You are the sovereign God. The the rulers of this earth, the kings of this earth are like grasshoppers before you. There is nothing before you. You rule your people with a mighty hand. You protect us as prophets, priests, and king. Your redeemer is for us. Christ is our mediator. Christ is our prophet, proclaims to our own hearts the word of God and instructs us. As our king, he subdues our enemies and his enemies for your own glory. And as our priest, He's the perfect intercession 
He's the perfect sacrifice to bring us into relationship. May we trust our God. May we have confidence in your word and in your plan. Come what might from this world and our great enemy, Satan. Let us trust you. Let us be confident. Let us hold fast to your word. Hold fast to each other. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.